Good morning, everyone. My name is Justin Bend, and I believe in integrity. I'm 31 years old. My wife's name is Natalie Bend. We moved to Washington, D.C. in January 2010. We live in Silver Spring with our two cats. We have been members of the Washington Ethical Society for just over a year now. Raised Catholic, my wife and I had been non-denominational agnostics, not belonging to any community or religion, for roughly a decade prior to joining Wes. My wife often tells me that I have way too many friends on Facebook. <laughs> I have to remind her that this is an outcome of growing up in such a small town. Everyone knew everyone else by their first name. I am friends with entire families of people, not just peers. I have three sets of aunts and uncles that still live in that small town in Illinois. My mother has lived there her whole life. I consider myself very fortunate to have enjoyed such security and support during my upbringing, and I know that experience provides the foundation for any growth I have made in this area. I am a triplet, which makes me somewhat of a celebrity back home. There was no space or time for dishonesty in the house that I grew up in. I was 13 years old when it came to my mother's attention that my father was having an affair. She discussed it openly with my siblings and I and sought our input on what action to take. We confronted my father as a family and came to the mutual decision that divorce was necessary. Within the same year, my mother lost her mother <coughs> her job, and her husband. No matter the commentary from loyal friends and colleagues, through all of it, my mother, my mother never once said a bad word about my father or cursed her circumstance, especially in front of my siblings and I. She raised us on her own through our teenage years. My mother is not college educated. Soon after the divorce, she found a job as a comptroller at a local bank. That institution has since seen explosive growth, acquiring other operations and expanding into the Chicago suburbs. She now holds the position of chief financial officer. My mother has taught me that good begets good, that I cannot be made a victim without my consent. Bad things occasionally do happen to good people. We are, each of us, in control over how we react to and counteract our circumstance. It is how we conduct ourselves in our darkest hour that creates the measure of our character. She has been and always will be my shining example of integrity personified. I was an apathetic youth. I'm almost ashamed to admit that my political awakening did not come until 2003. Prior to that time, I had no interest in the affairs of government. What changed that year was my brother's deployment of active duty with the Marine Corps in Iraq. I could not make any sense of it, this war we were undertaking. It was so confusing to me. I felt like my government was taking my blood from me with the risk that it would never return. I had to learn all there was to know about how this came to be and how to prevent it in the future. I have ferociously pursued political knowledge ever since. 
By the way, my brother finished his four years of service and returned to civilian life. He is now a very successful IT professional in, in Illinois. In the summer of 2006, I had the fortune to work as a Veterans Affairs intern for a certain senator from Illinois who now happens to be the President of the United States. <laughs> I had the privilege to meet the now first family. I discussed same-sex marriage equality with the President. This was seven years prior to the passage of, of that protection in the state of Illinois, which happened just two and a half weeks ago. It was fulfilling service, handling veterans' casework, and screening military academy applicants. I believe in national service and felt that this was the least I could do to contribute. At the time, my brother was serving his second tour of active duty in Iraq. As early as 2004, I was excited that a constitutional law professor from the University of Chicago was trending toward the White House. Natalie and I were selected from the ticket lottery and got to stand in Grant Park in Chicago on election night in 2008 as the first African-American was named President of the United States. Like everyone else, my upbringing and values inform the positions I hold. I try to constantly evolve my, evolve my thinking and not be locked in to the contemporary ideology of the party or personality of the day. I try to challenge myself to look further than our current discourse might allow and attempt to ensure that integrity informs the political beliefs I develop. I believe that the burden of proof for justification of existence always rests with an establishment of authority. If that burden cannot be met, that authority is illegitimate and should either be dismantled or revised and replaced in order to increase the scope of human freedom. I believe that democracy is an ethical ideal, that an equitable distribution of individual influence to create policy that affects the whole, based on the will of the majority, is the proper method to govern a people. By this measure, I believe that we have a lot of work to do. Whether considering the legality of controlled substances, considerations such as prostitution, I've written the word alternative, but I really dislike it, so let's call it extraordinary lifestyles, such as same-sex, polyamorous, or common-law living arrangements, or the status of undocumented people who call this country home. I believe more is lost from prohibition and denial than from regulation and acceptance. I believe our prison system cultivates a culture of desperation and violence, not reform. I believe capital punishment is the absolute admission of failure, a pure reaction, not a solution. I believe that government doesn't get any bigger than executing its own citizens. And I believe that war is never the answer, ever. The development of my political beliefs has been a way for me to express this value of integrity in action, to explore it and use it to challenge myself. However, the purest application of this value in my life came on a sunny Saturday during Labor Day weekend in 2010. When Natalie and I decided to get married, it was of paramount importance that the ceremony and celebration be absolutely genuine and of our creation. I understand that a group of officiants who share the same value are available to couples here at Wes. This is a rare and special thing. I believe that so often the marriage celebration 
can become an overly commercialized, fabricated projection of a life wished for, rather than a reflection of the two actual lives joining as one. Getting married in the Catholic Church was not an option for us. As I mentioned before, we were both raised Catholic, so between her family and mine, mostly mine, we knew we were in for a healthy dose of concentrated guilt and disappointment. (laughs) My cousin, a PhD candidate in biology at Virginia Tech, received an online ordination from the Universal Life Church so he could officiate our ceremony. Together with my wife and I, the three of us authored the entire proceeding, including the selection of secular readings. Each year, my wife's family has a reunion of sorts, a freedom festival over the Labor Day weekend, where her extended family congregate to camp, eat, drink, relax, and reconnect in the timber and rolling hills near Galena, Illinois, in the northwest corner of the state. They gather in the seclusion of a private family campground, far away from the stresses and commotion of everyday life. We added our wedding to this event. From the flower arrangements to the music and the food, all were contributions from family and friends. Our guests worked together to construct the reception tables and decorations prior to our arrival. Natalie's family grilled and prepared food. People brought dishes to pass. Acquaintances volunteered to work the reception. My cousin made the flower girl dresses and our wedding cake topper, a ladybug on the back of a turtle. (laughs) Children and dogs frolicked through the prairie grasses as we said our vows to one another in the late summer sun. Our families were moved beyond their initial apprehension. It was the most beautiful experience of my life to date. If you will allow me, I would like to share with you a portion of a vow I made to Natalie that day which I hope to be my ultimate declaration of integrity. We live in a world filled with dishonesty, unreason, and self-doubt, when truth, which is so basic and fundamental, seems impossible to find. Remember this truth that will always be absolute. I love you. I will always love you, no matter what, through anything, forever. I am here for you. I am with you until the end of my time. I believe that without integrity, all other values just fall away. Living an honest life is a difficult and meaningful challenge. As I look to the future and contemplate the next step of life, of building a family and guiding the development of other human beings, this value holds more importance to me now than ever before. This I believe. Thank you. Good morning. When, that, when Amanda asked me to participate in this platform, I froze. She was asking me to do two things that I find very difficult. Public speaking and sharing my deepest thoughts. Less deeply held thoughts and randomly formed opinions are easily dispensed. However, as my children and husband might tell you. Struggling with how to respond, I sought the counsel of a wise family member, my 13-year-old daughter, Sophie. After she finished chuckling, she encouraged me to do it. And when I agreed, she asked, 
So, will you say what you really believe, or something that will impress everyone? <laughs> Those who know me well know that saying things just to impress people is not virtue. I can't help but say what I believe. So, so here goes. My name is Marita McIntyre. I am the mother of two, Leo and Sophie, wife of one, Olivier, scientist and expert in FDA regulatory affairs, shoe lover, yoga enthusiast, laps knitter, curly girl. And I believe in the human race. This daughter of a half Guatemalan, half Chinese mother and an African American father who prefers to be called black and is son of a half-white father and a mother whose grandmother was a Native American woman pulled off of the trail of tears by a slave owner who eventually sent her to live with the slaves as she would not cease to resist him, believes not in black power, la raza, or white allies. She believes in the human race. My family and I have been attending West for about a year and became members in April. I'm ecstatic to have found the ethical culture movement, a movement that values the inherent worth of people and believes that by treating people in ways that bring out their best, we elicit the best in ourselves. This is a way of approaching the world that I try to practice and which I developed not as a result of philosophical or theological study, but as a means of self-preservation. I was born in Detroit, Michigan in 1965. My parents bought a house a few years before the 1968 riots. Soon after the riots, our neighborhood, which had been home to a mixture of white and black, immigrant and established American, was racked with strife and anger. As whites fled to the suburbs, more black families moved in, and by the age of five, my siblings and I experienced violent attacks from black children who called us whiteies and threw stones, bottle caps, and sticks. It got to the point where we couldn't go out and play. This situation was confusing, as we were not white, and as we barely spoke English, didn't even feel very American. We would cry and ask our parents what we were and where we were from. Their answer varied from, you are children of the universe, to colors, color doesn't matter, or better yet, you could be purple and it wouldn't make a difference. If I had been a sassier child, I would have responded, are you kidding me? Have you been outside lately? <laughs> when I was six and my father caught a kid trying to set our house on fire, we moved to a better neighborhood. This represented the arrival of the second black family to the neighborhood. Our house was sold to us by a Jewish family that broke the covenant not to sell to blacks as they themselves hastened to move away from the first black family. 
We did make good friends in that neighborhood, many of whom remain strong family friends today. As proof of their acceptance, some of the kids made a list of neighborhood families by race and proudly put us in a category of our own, brown. <laughs> Throughout those early years, a constant discussion in the neighborhood was whether families should stay or go. When some of our white friends announced to us that they were moving to the suburbs, they assured us this was not because they themselves were racist. They were simply fleeing anti-white racism of the black power movement. I don't want to see any more pe black people on the shikis, my gentle friend Celeste said. My grandmother, who my parents once saw on national news being arrested at a civil rights protest, often wore dashikis. And for special occasions, in addition to her bejeweled cat-eye glasses, the caftans and turbans that she picked up in travels throughout Africa. I had always been embarrassed by my grandmother's get-ups, wishing for a grandmother who baked. <laughs> but at that moment, I defended my grandmother's fashion choices valiantly and with great pride. Years later, I was shocked to arrive at the University of Chicago to prepare a PhD in biology and find myself the only black graduate student in the biological sciences, studying alongside the only black medical student, Eric Whitaker, who would go on to earn an MPH at Harvard and form a lifelong friendship with the law student, Barack Obama. Eric and I were not just the only two black students in our entry class. There were none ahead of us, and I don't think any other blacks entered the PhD program during the seven years I was at the UC. I pointed out this lack of diversity to administration when we was told they just don't apply. This despite the fact that the black entomologist Charles Henry Turner received his PhD there in 1907, and the cell biologist Ernst Everett Judd in 1916. There were also no Latino students pursuing a PhD during my time there. Most of the black graduate students at UFC attended the illustrious business school or the law school. When I would tell them that I was preparing a PhD studying cancer-causing viruses, they almost all responded, blacks don't do that. With those four words, they summarily rejected my interests and identity as a scientist. Moreover, I couldn't believe blacks were selling themselves so short. Hadn't they heard of Benjamin Banneker, George Washington Carver, and Daniel Hale Williams, who performed the first open heart surgery? I was actually relieved when a black business student explained to me that pursuing a PhD didn't make sense on a cost-benefit basis. <laughs> the income I would gain would never be commensurate with the amount of time I invested in the pursuit. Maybe if I had known it would take seven years, I would have believed him. 
But how refreshing it was to have my interests belittled based on economic theory rather than race. <laughs> These interactions focused my resolve to form relationships with people from all races and cultures who shared my interests and beliefs, as my parents had always encouraged. And I found good friends who supported me throughout my studies, including my husband, Olivier, to whom I've been married for 20 years. Although my childhood might otherwise be best described as a classic upper-middle-class upper one, complete with big house on a tree-lined street, playing with tons of kids till our mothers called us inside, and first-world problems like enforced sailing lessons, it might not surprise you to learn that my childhood experience of racism by whites and blacks alike engendered in me a negative view of mankind and an inherent distrust of everyone, which I struggle with to this day. Guilty until proven innocent is not a healthy worldview. Fortunately, it was modified by the strong and loving extended family that surrounded me who valued intellectual pursuit and a deep interest in other cultures. I also attended Catholic school for 12 years and went to church every Sunday, encountering people who modeled decency and welcomed all races. To this day, my parents work tirelessly in the predominantly Latino parish where my father is a deacon, ministering to both spiritual and daily needs of the parishioners. While I have come to disagree with the way the Catholic Church has decided to live its gospel, I can't deny that my moral core has been shaped by my Catholic upbringing and acknowledge the role the Church has played in civil rights and Central American freedom movements and in caring for the poor. More specifically for me, there are times when the grace evident in the teachings of the Gospels was the only proof that I had that there was any potential good for humankind. Although genetic background and life experiences have driven me to view and judge people in a non-race-based way, this can also be a vulnerable, a very vulnerable way to live, since without a label or group, one can feel as if he or she has no identity or that there is no room for him or her anywhere. Having produced multiracial children of my own, I worry that they may experience the same confusion and lack of connection. At these times, the psychedelic pronouncements of my parents now seem comforting. I belong to the universe, or at least the human race. It is also a comfort to belong to Wes, where I hope you will come to value me for the contributions I make to the community. As a scientist, I generally seek to test and prove the things that I believe. And although I have come to my humanist beliefs largely through my own life experience, it encourages me that an early member of the ethical culture, Franz Boas, an anthropologist who founded the relativistic, culture-centered school of American anthropology, made it his life's work to debunk the theory of superior and inferior races. 
and to encourage the understanding of different cultures and how their history and experiences shape their current state, more so than any inherent traits. Not only did Bo's academic endeavors influence academics, including Margaret Mead, W.E.D.B. Dubois, Zora Neale Hurston, and Ella Deloria, a member of the Dakota Nation, he also practiced what he preached, speaking out for Native American rights and the need to preserve and teach their culture and traditions as opposed to banning them. Boaz also was deeply involved in the NAACP in its early years, and in 1910 contributed the lead article titled The Real Race Problem in the second issue of the NAACP's journal, The Crisis, A Record of the Darker Races. Not surprisingly, the fact that Boaz advocated the mixing of races as a means to promote what those of you who may have studied botany or agriculture know as hybrid vigor <laughs> resonates with me, given my family makeup. <laughs> in closing, like Franz Boaz, I believe in the human race as the only scientifically legitimate race, and because it is the only one big enough to hold me and my family. This belief doesn't mean that I am blind to the racism that is alive and well in this country and would like to support and encourage West to continue to address the elements of racism that hold people from reaching their potential. What am I doing here this morning? <laughs> I've been coming to West for 31 years. I think this is the first time I've been up here behind the podium during the platform. So thank you very much, Amanda, for making that possible. But I do want to ask, what am I doing here? Who would have thought the girl who aced the Baltimore Catechism and made her first communion at six years old? Okay, I'm the third fallen away Catholic up here today. <laughs> we didn't plan it that way. I didn't know. I was the girl who loved the stories of saints and martyrs, the flickering candles, the burning incense, and the singing of Gregorian chants. Who would have thought that this girl would grow up to embrace a lifelong search for ultimate meaning in a humanistic religion? If God didn't make me, where did I come from? If Christ did not die to prepare my place in heaven, where will I go, if anywhere, when I leave here? Instead of letting the priest characterize my failings, of many, as venial sins and capital sins, how do I choose between good and evil when there is so much gray? We don't know where we came from and we don't know where we're going. It seems we are all adrift on a raft in a vast, vast sea with no land in sight, not anywhere. As I see it, we're in a pretty damn leaky boat. <laughs> and if we don't learn how to get together, we'll all go down together. Soon after graduating women Mary, this Virginia girl found herself immersed in a Buddhist society. As a Peace Corps volunteer in Thailand, 
I, would, I still went to Mass every Sunday with the Jesuit priests. As the months passed, though, without even realizing it, I was absorbing the attitudes of my school's teachers, my students, and my Thai friends. They were simply living their Buddhist beliefs. I saw how the children, with little regard to their legal parents, were being raised by the entire community. Their reverence, the Thai's reverence for life, for all life, for human life, for plant life, was like hardwired. It's just not even something they questioned. They just naturally knew their place in the universe, one that was interdependent, interdependent with all living things. My beliefs were being reshaped by this very different culture and way of looking at the world. I wasn't really aware of it until something happened that shook me up. It was summer vacation when I heard the terrible news. A bus from Phuket, where I was living, overturned on the 21-hour trip over deeply rutted roads to Bangkok. My best student, a beautiful girl of 17, was on that bus. She died in the accident. In my grief, I was thinking, oh, she's not in heaven. Um, well, maybe she's going to come back as another person. Maybe a great teacher, since she had been such a good human. Or perhaps she only had to live this brief life to attain a higher level. That's when it dawned on me that I was no longer thinking like a good little Catholic. Later, when I returned to the U.S., I left the church. I walked straight out in the middle of a mass. I, uh, I could no longer recite the credo. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and all things visible and invisible. It was a big step for me. I had to trust and believe in the voice inside of me, the one that said, know thyself and be true to yourself. I trusted that somehow by opening up a space within me. I trusted I would find my path. Looking back to my earliest memories, I, I think that children have a natural sense of what's there and what's not. I know I did. Social justice was always a part of my life, even in childhood. I was naturally empathetic. We had a lot of transients in Newport News, military families. So new children would come into my classroom in the middle of the year I was usually the first to befriend them because I could only imagine that they must be very scared and lonely. And I love the stories of St. Francis of Assisi who gave away all of his riches and served the poor. These stories took root in my heart and mind. I hoped that someday I would be someone who loved the lonely, the underdog, and the downtrodden. My grandfather took me to the public library when I was uh, seven and got me my first library card. I was really happy when I got to graduate to the upstairs where the adult books were. <laughs> I picked up a book by Booker T. Washington, Up From Slavery. Maybe some of you have read it. 
I was immensely moved by the story of a man's life rising from a slave child during the Civil War. He overcome, overcame many difficulties and obstacles, and he was a catalyst for advancing blacks and dis disadvantaged minorities. And then I started noticing that all of the African Americans in my town lived in the poorest area, and they had jobs like road work and housekeeping. I took city buses to school, and I began sitting or standing with them in the back of the bus, partly because as a child I could, but partly to show I was like them. By the time I was finishing college, I harbored a deep desire to help the world become a fairer place, but I didn't know what I could do. John F. Kennedy's call came at just the right time. You've heard a little lot these last few weeks. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I felt like he was speaking directly to me. And then when the Peace Corps was announced, I was pretty sure I wasn't what they were looking for. But what did I know? I, it, I knew that if I were offered the chance, I would go anywhere and do anything that might help people who weren't born with my advantages. When I was selected to join a training program for English teachers, people thought I was crazy to sign up for two years. In the beginning, a lot of uh, people were very suspicious of the Peace Corps, but that was okay for me. I was the oldest of four children and always a risk taker, the first to jump off a roof. <laughs> And I was the first from my college to take the leap. That all happened more than 50 years ago, at the beginning of my adult life. Now I'm at the other end of my working life. And I want to continue to make a difference in this world. Fortunately, Wes has given me a community rich in members to share my desire to make a difference. Sometimes it takes suffering to open us up to others. When I returned home from the Peace Corps, I pursued my career, I traveled, and enjoyed good friends. I was in my late 30s when I married a man from Ohio, Dave Besco. He was quite brilliant, a mathematician and a musician. A few days home from our honeymoon, he was discovered to have a tumor. And in less than six months, he died of melanoma at the age of 37. I put my grief aside and energetically began to look for another soulmate. Two years later, I met Paul, who answered my personal ad and became the great love of my life. That is when Wes came into our lives and offered me many ways to channel my energies to serve the community. I believe your life is a journey, and it took another life blow to propel me to greater commitment to service. Paul and I had been married only a few years when I was diagnosed with a lung tumor. After the surgery, I was told I had a very rare cancer that could reoccur anytime, anywhere in my body. And because it was so rare, they really didn't have any protocols for treating it. That was a knock on the door, more like bashing in the door. 
It was a call to action. The little voice inside that wanted to give back to the world was getting louder. At West, I found my passion was a powerful tool for drawing others who also wanted to serve. We formed a new committee to address hunger and homelessness in our society. We were maybe eight or nine regular members. We met at my house after work. I always made some homemade soup to feed everybody. Within a short time, we were organizing fundraisers, channeling recruits into staffing the CCNV sandwich van, maybe some of you remember that, um, to reach the homeless at night, and we began preparing dinners at Luther Place. We've been doing that a long time now. We formed teams called Friends in Action to support families on the edge. Some of you may remember the newsletter we published for West members and friends called Red Lines. And finally, we organized an annual sale, craft sale, that enabled West over 10 plus years to give hundreds of thousands of dollars to the hungry and homeless. Best of all, that craft sale, this is what I liked best, involved every single member at West, one way or the other in helping the neediest of our community. And I do believe you create your own experience in the world. Today, I'm very happy to be working with another group at West to advance immigration reform. Our big dream is to launch the first ever Washington Immigration Film Festival. We want to put a face on immigration. Our goal is to involve the entire community, West and beyond and to make immigration reform happen. We invited area UU churches to join us as sponsors, and we now have an integrated steering committee made up of West and UU members in Maryland, Virginia, and DC. You can talk to me after the platform if you'd like to know more. People ask me, well, how do you bear the pain and suffering of so many people in need? And my answer is, Find others who want to do something. Sharing the work makes the enormity of what we're up against so much less daunting. Whether it's a fundraising sale or a film festival or serving a meal to the homeless, you will learn new skills, you'll achieve goals, and ultimately may find satisfactions beyond any you've gained from your working life. Most of all, the friends you make through this kind of teamwork help fill the hole in your heart. I believe the way to seek the ultimate meaning in your life comes down to two precepts. The first I learned from my early teachers, the Sisters of Charity of Nazareth. Love thy neighbor as thyself. The second from Felix Adler, our founder of Ethical Culture. Act so as to elicit the best in others and thereby in yourselves. I believe in the power of community to make a difference in the world. Thank you.